Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Our text for the morning is Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I want us to look at this majestic epistle, the epistle to the Romans, penned by the Apostle Paul. And we will plan to do so this morning, the Lord being our helper, by trying to give you a sort of overview or summary or outline of the book of Romans, the big picture, if you please. This important New Testament letter has exercised a significant influence in the history of Christianity. Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo in North Africa in the fourth century, lived a very profligate life until one day he heard some little children singing a song, Tolo Lege, Tolo Lege, which meant take up and read. And he went home and he picked up the Bible and he opened to the 13th chapter of the book of Romans and read the passage that says, the night is far spent and the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light, not in rioting and wantonness, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. And that verse convicted him, for he was making provision for the flesh. He was living a dark and, again, profligate life. And over time, of course, Augustine found peace in his heart. Some centuries later, Martin Luther, who was an Augustinian monk in the school of Augustine, as he studied the writings of St. Augustine, Luther desired more than anything else to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. But one phrase continued to puzzle him, and it was the expression, the righteousness of God. But one day the light dawned. And he saw that the righteousness of God in the book of Romans is not describing God's attribute of righteousness so much as it is God's gift of righteousness through Jesus Christ. And he said, what was to me something that I despised and that made me afraid, now that phrase, the righteousness of God, became to me a theme that thrilled my heart. And he said, I did feel that I was at the very portal of the gate of heaven. About 200 years after Luther, John Wesley was listening to someone read from the preface of Luther's book on Romans, and Wesley said he felt his heart strangely warmed by the arguments in the book of Romans. And if you have been around primitive Baptists for very long, you have no doubt heard many, many sermons from the book of Romans, particularly the eighth chapter of Romans, which is a very favorite chapter of old Baptist preachers, That passage, of course, it says, for whom he did foreknow, them he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, and so forth. Or the passage, who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or peril or famine or nakedness or sword? Paul says, nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Yes, my friends, the book of Romans is sublime. It is heavenly. It is glorious in its tone. Now, it's weighty in its theological argument. I give you that. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3 that many of Paul's writings were hard to be understood. 
And the book of Romans contains a number of those, and perhaps you're like me, you find yourself scratching your head and wondering from time to time as you study through Romans what a particular verse or what a particular argument might possibly mean. The book of Romans is not for water skiers, you know, skimming the surface. It's for deep sea divers. And if you can dive deep enough in the book of Romans, may I say, you will find riches that you didn't know exist, for this is such a tremendous book. In fact, Bible students have employed various metaphors to describe the grandeur of the book of Romans. It has been called Paul's magnum opus, or if you please, a Christian manifesto. One of our preachers called it a theological masterpiece. And then another has said that the book of Romans is the master key of Scripture. Now that last image, the master key of Scripture, is a description that I like because just as in the first century, it was common to hear people say all roads lead to Rome. I would say all biblical roads lead to Romans. You know, Rome was sort of the epicenter of the civilized world in that day. And highways were built to connect to Rome. Whatever the geography, the roads were made to converge on the hub of the city of Rome. It was, if you please, the epicenter again of the first century world. And just as all roads lead to Rome, I would say all biblical roads, whether you're talking about Old Testament prophecy or types and shadows or the poetry and wisdom literature of the Old Testament or the gospels in the New Testament, or if you please, the Acts of the Apostles, it's the book of Romans that explains the significance and that shows the culmination of the argument in each of these Bible books. So all roads lead to Romans. Now again, it's not an easy book. The key word in the book of Romans is the word righteousness. It is used together with its synonym just or justify or justice some 60 times in the book of Romans. And the theme of this book can be summarized in this expression, righteousness revealed. Listen, if you will, to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Now, there would be no need to say I'm not ashamed unless there was a temptation to be ashamed. The message of the gospel is different to every other message with which one might meet in society. But Paul says, I'm not embarrassed by the gospel. Although it may be unpopular to the world, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it, that is the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Now, of course, that expression describes somebody who's already been born again. Show me somebody who believes. I'll show you somebody who gives evidence of a prior spiritual birth. For birth always comes before belief, just as life always precedes action. So the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. This message will deliver you. If you're a child of God, born of the Spirit of God, the gospel will deliver you from many false ideas. It will deliver you from the burden of conviction of sin. It will deliver you from the yoke of false teaching like legalism, the conditionalism of keeping the law. It will deliver you from fear, from despair, from anxiety about what people might think. The gospel has a saving influence in the life of the child of God. It is the power of God. This is a powerful message to deliver the child of God. 
to the Jew first, he says, and also to the Greek, that is the gospel first came to the Jewish people and then it spread to the Greek people, God's children among both ethnicities. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, notice this, for therein in the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. I said the theme of Romans is righteousness revealed. Now, he didn't say in the gospel the righteousness of God is procured. But he said it is revealed. And to reveal something means to shine the light on it so that you can see it. The gospel is not the means of procuring a righteous status before God. Jesus Christ is the means by which sinners are made righteous before God. But the gospel tells us what Christ has done and it reveals, it shines the light on what Jesus Christ has objectively accomplished so that subjectively you and I might understand it, believe it, embrace it, and live in the light of it. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So the theme is righteousness revealed. Now maybe you're here today and you say, Preacher, the word righteousness is one of those heavy, ponderous words with which I'm really unfamiliar. I've heard it used at church, but I don't use it on a regular basis. What does the word righteousness mean? You may notice that the root of that word are the five letters, R-I-G-H-T, right. Have you ever driven down the road and seen a billboard that asks the question, are you right with God? And that's the question really that the book of Romans answers. Are you right with God? Do you have a right relationship with God? Now here's the message of the book of Romans. Before we understand that righteousness has been revealed, that God has revealed to us how he has made sinners right with him, before we understand that we must see man's plight by nature. So if I could give you five heads, if you're a note taker here this morning, the five heads that we'll talk about, first we'll talk about righteousness needed. Now the general theme is righteousness revealed. Roman numeral number one is righteousness desperately needed. And that's chapters one through three in the book of Romans. The theme of Romans chapters one through three, my friends, is that we are not righteous. Now you know that, don't you? In fact, no man or woman, boy or girl, except for Jesus Christ the righteous, as 1 John 2, 1 calls him, no one is righteous before God. In and of ourselves, we do not have a right relationship with God. And that's the theme of Romans chapters 1 through 3. In fact, from Romans 1.18 to Romans 3.20, we see righteousness is desperately needed. Now, I just read to you Romans 1.17, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. God reveals his gracious gift of righteousness in the gospel. But notice the very next verse, Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. He talks about righteousness revealed in the gospel in verse 17. He talks about wrath revealed from heaven. Now, where do you see evidence of the righteousness of God? Well, we only see this reality in the proclamation of the gospel. God has made sinners righteous. You say, where can I go to hear that message? Only the gospel of grace. But where do we see evidence that God is angry, that he's a God of wrath with sinners? We see that in nature and in history. The wrath of God is revealed not in a book or in a message, but it's revealed in actual real-time history. It's revealed from heaven. By the way, the Old Testament reveals several episodes of divine wrath. 
The global flood in Genesis 6 through 9 is an example that God is angry with sin. God saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, that every thought and imagination of his heart was only evil continually, and God flooded the earth with a flood to cleanse it of its sin. He saved Noah, Noah's wife, his three sons and their wives, eight souls were saved from the evil around them by the water of the flood. Another place we see the wrath of God revealed from heaven is the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Man was trying to build his tower to the sky. He was in rebellion against God. He wanted to be his own God, and God came down and confounded or confused their languages. The word Babel means confusion, so that they could not understand each other. And of course, when you can't communicate, then you can't accomplish your goals. So there is an evidence from heaven in real-time history that God is angry with sin. Then you see it again at Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboam, the cities of the plain in Genesis 19, when God rained fire and brimstone from heaven, and he destroyed the cities that were so sinful and depraved. You see God's wrath from heaven, the wrath of God. Now, my friends, before we can understand the good news of the Bible, we have to understand the bad news. And the text we took this morning shows us the bad news first and the good news second, doesn't it? Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That's the bad news. And my friends, that's the harsh reality that a person must face and understand before the gospel will mean anything to you. The wages of sin is death. You see, God is angry with sin. Here's the good news, though. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, he shows us this dark backdrop. Just as a jeweler will display a precious gem against a dark background of maybe black or red velvet, because it's against that dark backdrop that the beauty of the gem shines more brilliantly. So the Word of God shows us the bad news before it gives us the good news. We must first hear the thunderings of Sinai, the anger of a just and holy God against sin, before we can understand the sweet tones of the gospel of grace, that his wrath has been satisfied, the law has been met, and sinners now have been brought into favor. They've been made right with God. We must understand the bad news first. The Old Testament must come before the new. The law must come before the gospel. Sinai must come before Zion. My friends, may I say that I'm so glad that salvation in heaven, my right relationship with God, does not depend on my works or your works. Because the fact is, did it depend on us doing the law, keeping the law, I dare say none of us would ever be just or righteous before God. So righteousness is desperately needed. Interestingly, this passage in Romans 1 describes a scene that could be this morning's news in the newspaper. Would you listen to this passage? Romans 1, 18. God is angry and he's showing his anger from heaven through acts of judgment in history. Listen to this. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, that is in humanity. There's something in man different from what is in an animal that shows that he was created in the image of God but yet he willfully suppresses the truth, as verse 18 says. He holds the truth in unrighteousness. The word hold in that verse means to suppress, to hold it down or to hold it back. For God hath showed it unto them. Listen to this. For the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, 
being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Somebody says, I just didn't know, God, that you existed. God says there's evidence all around you. You see, the problem with man by nature is not that he doesn't have enough knowledge. It's that he doesn't love the God that is. It's not a lack of knowledge. It's a refusal to acknowledge God. In other words, it's not an intellectual problem at all. It's a moral problem. The fool hath said in his heart, there's no God. That's man's problem by nature. He has heart trouble because there's evidence all around him. Who can look at the starry expanse? at the grandeur on the macro scale of the created universe or at the intricacy on the micro scale and say that it's all a matter of random process and chance. Oh, my friends, design presupposes a designer. Organization argues for an organizer. Would you expect to walk into your little child's room and see a bunch of little wooden blocks on the floor that spelled out the first line of the Gettysburg Address four score and seven years ago, and you said to your two-year-old, how did you do that? And the child, if they could speak, said, I just came in and dumped them out, and it came into that form, four score. And no, if you read that, dear friends, may I say, you know that somebody had to arrange them. And there is no possible way that the universe could be as intricate and finely tuned as it is without a designer without an organizer. God is that creator. In fact, the first verse of the Bible tells us in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the atheist is without excuse for not recognizing that God is. And then he goes on to talk about how that this ignorance or this willful ignorance turns into rebellion against God. Listen to this, because when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but they became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Now, ask yourself as you listen to this description if it doesn't describe popular culture and society today. And they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man. Fallen sinners are idolaters by nature and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up to vile affections. For even the women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, they burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. I'll stop reading there. That's frightening enough, isn't it? That passage, though we won't elaborate on its meaning shows us mankind in revolt and rebellion against God because of sin. And therefore he's worshiping birds and four-footed beasts and creatures of every kind. And he's willfully turning a blind eye to the evidence that he's accountable to God. This is what sin has done in human history. A parallel passage to Romans 1 is Psalm 2 where it says that the rulers of the world gathered in a coalition 
The kings of the earth and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast their cords away from us. I dare say, dear friends, that mankind in history gives evidence of a cosmic coup d'etat against the government of God. He doesn't like to be restricted by these laws that God has given. He wants to be his own God. He doesn't want to have to answer to the true God. That's man in sin. That's Romans 1. Now, while the Jews were reading Paul's first chapter of Romans, they probably looked down their noses at the Gentiles and said, that's right. Romans 1 describes you. But in Romans 2, Paul says, to the Jew, thou art therefore inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest another, thou doest the same things thyself. And what he's doing in Romans chapter 2 is showing that not only are the Gentiles sinners, but the Jews are sinners by nature as well. It doesn't matter whether you're in what you think is a privileged group or whether you're in the dregs of society, may I say every man is guilty before God. In fact, that's what Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned, Jew and Gentile, and come short of the glory of God. Did you know the gospel starts with this dark message that every human being, man, woman, boy, and girl, is a sinner by nature. We're all Adam multiplied, and therefore God is angry. We're children of wrath, even as others, in and of ourselves. There's nothing in us to commend us to God. There's nothing in us that makes us worthy. In fact, my friends, God would have been just to have banished the whole of humanity to a devil's hell for eternity. He didn't have to save any of us. Here's our miserable plight. Here's our fallen condition. The wrath of God abides upon us. And that's not only true of the Jews, it's also true of the Gentiles. Romans chapter 3 tells us it's true of every one of us. Listen to verse 10. There is none righteous. No, not one. Now preachers are known to exaggerate. But Paul says, lest you think I'm exaggerating, I will add this disclaimer or this extra phrase. There's none righteous. You say the point of exaggeration. Obviously, there has to be an exception. He says, no, not one. There's not an exception to that rule. There's none that understandeth. Now, what you have in Romans 3 is not a diagnosis of a sick man, but an autopsy of a dead man. Paul is uh, showing us from head to toe how that we're full of wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, that there's no soundness. There's nothing in man in and of himself to commend him to God. He says, there's none righteous. Now, what's the theme of Romans? Righteousness. Do you have any of it by nature? Do you have any of it inherently? Are you born with even an inkling? Is there even an island of righteousness in you or me or any man in and of himself? No, my friends, in and of ourselves, we are devoid of righteousness. In fact, anything that appears to be a work of righteousness is like a filthy rag before God. That's what Isaiah 64, 6 says. All our righteousness says, all our works of righteousness. Somebody says, well, I give money to charity. I help the elderly with their groceries. I make sure that I'm in the neighborhood watch society so that I uh, help to keep my neighbors safe. I take care of my pets and treat them humanely. These are works, evidence that I'm righteous. He said all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. I've been embarrassed before showing up to church with a spot on my tie 
or maybe a coffee stain on my shirt, you know, and tried to cover it up. Can you imagine, though, appearing before the God of the universe in filthy garments, filthy rags? How embarrassing would that be? Would you go before the president or the governor or the mayor of the city or the city council in your T-shirt that you used to plow the garden or to change the oil in your car or in your old uh, dungarees or blue jeans with holes in them and dirt on? Wouldn't you take a bath and dress up and comb your hair and wear your Sunday best? Indeed, my friends, but may I say before God by nature, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. I think we could say today there is none righteous. No, not one. And notice the intellect is fallen. There's none that understandeth. The will is fallen. There's none that seeketh after God. Man doesn't have the desire to pursue God by nature. I'm telling you, dear friends, that anywhere you see a desire to pursue God, to seek God, that's an evidence that a person's been changed because by nature there is none that seeketh after God. Now, he may seek the benefits that come from God, but he doesn't seek the God who alone can give those benefits. There was a popular movement in Christian circles a few years back called the Seeker-Sensitive Church. And the idea was that every person, whether they know it or not, is seeking God. And therefore, we want to make churches accessible as possible for the seekers. We're sensitive to the seekers so that they can find the God that they're seeking. I'm telling you, dear friends, the only people who will ever seek God, as Acts 17, 27 tells us, are those who happily feel after Him. You say, then how do you explain these people who are so hungry for peace? Wouldn't you say that every human being wants peace? Every human being wants fulfilling relationships? Yes, indeed. Every human being wants to be at peace. Every human being wants to have fulfilling relationships. They want the benefits that only God can give, but they don't want the God who can give those benefits. That's the point. You see that? They're seeking God's benefits, but they don't seek God until they've been born again. So Romans 3, in this autopsy of man by nature, he says we're not righteous. Not a one of us. It's your legal status before God. You look on the record books of heaven, nobody fits the bill. Nobody meets the criteria. Then let's look at us personally. There's none that understandeth. Our mind is fallen. There's none that seeketh after God. Our will is fallen. They are together become unprofitable. That is, we all fell in Adam. That word together means simultaneously. When Adam sinned, you sinned. I sinned. Every one of his posterity sinned in him. We are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Did you know our fairest designs are besmirched by sin? Our greatest deeds are colored by our depravity. He says, there's none that doeth good. No, not one. And if even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, how heinous must our sins be? He goes on to say their throat is an open sepulcher. The idea is of a grave where the stench is leaching out. The tomb has been left open. And he says the throat of man is an open sepulcher. It lets out the stench of sin that's in our hearts. Now this is graphic language. Sometimes we need graphic language as good old-fashioned shock therapy to uh, show us the truth, don't we? Their throat is an open sepulcher. You know, when people talk before they've been born again, you know what comes out? They spew acid comments, biting sarcasms. The venom of sin comes out of their heart because it's out of the heart that the mouth speaketh. And then he says, with their tongues, 
They have used deceit. Lying, deception is a natural part of life for the fallen sinner. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their words are as venomous as a rattlesnake bite, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. I've heard the vilest language. May I say that is typical of men by nature. Their feet are swift to shed blood. That is, they're always running on errands, not of mercy, but errands of mischief, and they don't care who they hurt in the process. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Their path is littered with lives destroyed, homes destroyed, misery, heartache in their wake. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Man by nature is not a God-fearer. I used to hear old-timers say, that's a God-fearing woman. That's a God-fearing man. What a wonderful compliment that is. May I say where you find somebody who truly reverences and respects and fears God, you have somebody who gives evidence of grace. For by nature there is no fear of God before man's eyes. He goes on to say, Now we know that whatever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. Wouldn't that be wonderful if you could silence the whole of humanity today? I mean, voices vying for attention everywhere you turn. People shouting and screaming and trying to get their position out there and other people trying to counter them. Wouldn't it be wonderful if every mouth could be stopped, may I say, if we all understood this truth, it would silence the whole lot of us, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty, guilty, guilty before God. Romans chapters 1 through 3 show us righteousness desperately needed. Beginning in Romans 3.21 though, we see righteousness graciously given. The theme of Romans is the righteousness of God has been revealed in the gospel. It starts with this message that we're all devoid of righteousness by nature. We desperately need it because we don't have any of it. And here's the good news now. God has graciously given righteousness through Jesus Christ. Listen to Romans 3.21. After he says, Therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in God's sight. No one is righteous before God by keeping the law. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. He says, but now. And those two little words, my friends, are so wonderful that they deserve a trumpet blast, a fanfare, if George Frederick Handel was writing an oratorio on the book of Romans, perhaps right here would be an opportune time for the Hallelujah Chorus. But now, you see, our plight is very miserable. Our condition is desperate. But now, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, that is, here's righteousness, which is measured by Christ, not measured by the law. You know, somebody says, you're righteous if you keep the Sabbath. You're righteous if you don't swear. If you don't perjure yourself, you're righteous if you don't commit adultery. Pharisee says, Lord, look at how good I've kept the law. I'm righteous. But he says, righteousness is not measured by the law, but it's measured by Jesus Christ. He says, even the righteousness which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
And my friend, may I say that this is the heart of the gospel message. All roads lead to Romans because here is the core of the good news. The Bible is a book, my friends, that anticipates good news. Through the Old Testament, it leads up to it. And with the New Testament, Jesus Christ comes and procures salvation. And the epistles in the New Testament explain what it means and apply it to our lives. All roads are leading to this message. The good news of the Word of God is simply this, that man who is in such a desperate plight has been rescued by a gracious gift of somebody who's lived up to the law in our stead and credited or imputed to our account his perfect obedience, his righteousness. Righteousness has been graciously given. That's the theme of Romans 3, 4, and 5. The righteousness of God has been revealed in the gospel. And what does the gospel tell us? It tells us that we can't save ourselves, but God purposed to save us, and Jesus Christ did it. He accomplished the work. He finished the work of salvation. Romans chapter 3, again, verse 24, being justified freely by His grace. And don't miss that word freely. It's one of Paul's favorite words in these chapters in Romans. You see it several times in chapter 5 when he says in verse 15, not as the offense, so also is the free gift. Verse 16, not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift for the judgment was by one to condemnation, talking about Adam, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. Through one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, the gift of righteousness, shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to con You see what he's doing in this passage? He's comparing Adam in Christ, the first man and the second man, the two federal heads, if you please. Adam represented his, the entire human family. Jesus represented the entire covenant family of God, those that were chosen by the Father in the covenant before time began. And he says that what Adam did to us, as far as getting us into trouble with God, the second man, Jesus Christ, in our stead has given us a free gift of justification and righteousness through his perfect obedience. Verse 19 says, For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, many were made sinners, even so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Now, salvation by obedience, be careful before you answer. It's not by your obedience or mine. Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done but it is by the work of righteousness which Jesus Christ has done somebody had to do some work for you to be saved somebody had to obey God and keep the law in our stead and by one man's obedience and that one man is Jesus Christ many were made righteous now when God looks at you and me today he sees us not as sinners because he's viewing us through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ he sees us as everything that the law requires us to be. Imagine that. Have you ever looked in the mirror at yourself and just shaken your head in disgust and said, my, I just despise my old nature. I'm so ashamed of myself. I can't figure myself out. I'm an enigma to myself. I hurt people. I say things I don't want to say. My temper gets out of control. I'm a vile sinner. 
That's what we see when we look in the mirror. But you know what God sees when he looks at you and me? He sees you as perfectly righteous, in fact, as righteous as Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. The only inherently righteous man who's ever lived. That's why, again, 1 John 2, 1 calls him Jesus Christ, the righteous. 1 Peter 3, 18 says, Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just, for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. My friend, I'm glad to tell you today the good news of the gospel is Jesus Christ met the demands of God's holy law in your stead and mine. And because he lived up to the law, God has taken what he did on the cross and he's credited it to your account and to mine. So that when God looks at the ledger sheet of heaven and he says, let's see, Mike Goins, he looks over and he says, he's righteous. God sees me as righteous for the sake of the Lord Jesus and you as well. Every one of the elect that were foreknown and elected and predestinated before time began, Jesus Christ justified them freely, being freely justified. Freely justified. That means declared righteous, declared free from guilt or blame, being freely justified by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm telling you about it in the gospel, and if you believe it, you can have the peace of that and the assurance of it in your heart. That's what justification by faith is all about. Well, I knew I was biting off more than I could chew this morning when I said I'm going to give you an overview of the whole book of Romans because we've only gotten to chapter 5 and I didn't even deal with that in detail, but yet you see how the theme is developed here. How that man is devoid of righteousness, but God has given us righteousness by His grace, through Christ, and the gospel reveals that fact. It tells us about it. And when we believe it, my friends, may I say, it exercises a profound influence in our hearts and minds in the way we should live our lives. And that's the remainder of the book of Romans, and we won't go into detail about that this morning. The bottom line is this. I have bad news. The wages of sin is death. But I have good news this morning. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This gospel of grace is indeed the best news that a poor sinner has ever heard. It will save you from great bondage and many pitfalls in this life. If you have heard and received this message today, I wonder if you can say with the Apostle Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. If this gospel of grace resonates in your heart and experience, and you have not yet confessed Jesus publicly and united with the church, cast in your lot with those of like precious faith, we bid you to come this morning as we stand to sing some appropriate hymn.
Grace Alone Radio is an affiliate of Sovereign Grace Publications. For the past 30 plus years, Sovereign Grace Publications has published and distributed books from some of the best contemporary authors among primitive Baptists. Our goal has been to make sound and substantive biblical literature accessible to the rank and file believer. Currently, we have over 25 titles available, ranging from New Testament expositions to Christian apologetics to biblical studies to daily devotionals and even poetry. For a complete list of our titles, visit the bookstore at sovgrace.net. That's S-O-V as in victory, G-R-A-C-E dot net.